Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. I read one of these that's probably just a, a total preacher story. But I read a story about a woman who um, was not a Christian, you know, but she had noticed several of her friends wearing a nice little golden cross. And so she went into a jewelry shop and told the jeweler, said, you know, I want one of those beautiful little necklaces with the golden crosses on it, but I don't really want one of those with the little man on the cross. And today, as we near the end of our study in Mark's gospel, we are in the final section, coming to the end of it as well, nearly. We have one more week left. As we're in the passion narrative, the final climactic days of Jesus' earthly ministry, we come to the cross. For much of the history of the church, now not really in the early church, the, the first symbols of the early church were, were a fish. It, it designated that you were a Christian. I uh, won't go into why that is, but uh, within a century or two, uh, the church had adopted really the cross as a logo, if you will, an emblem, an icon, uh, for good reason. Uh, they adopted that because the New Testament writers speak about the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross as really the epicenter, as this formative event that really changes the way we view history and all of life and certainly salvation. But it is possible that the cross has been stripped for many of us of its meaning, um, maybe because of the ubiquitous nature, that is, it's, it's everywhere. They're out on, on steeples and they're on our jewelry. Maybe we've sanitized the cross too much. And certainly like that woman who wanted the cross without the little man on it, many people want to speak about the cross but remove the bloody, dying, and dead Savior, Jesus, from the cross. And so today, I want us to see the cross in all of its glory and all of its gory details to not remove the splinters and the nails from it you know really the cross and all that encompasses and is around it is the narrative of the world you know our, our country right now is so immersed in trying to figure out the right narrative a narrative is is it's like a paradigm it's a, a or a lens in which we view everything it's to us, it's the story that we believe, the way things are. And I would say to you that the cross is right at the center of the narrative of reality. By the cross and in and around the cross, we understand who God is, what he's like, how he relates to man, what man and woman, what all of humanity is like, what the world is like, and why. So we're going to study the story of Christ crucified. And I want us in that to consider what the cross has accomplished. What the cross accomplished. There are three books I would recommend to you if you want to do further reading on this and research, and I would certainly uh, appeal to you to do that. Number one is Tim Keller's book called The King's Cross. It's actually based in the book of Mark. Wonderful um, explanations of the theology around the cross. John Piper's book, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. That's available online for free. You can pull it up. And that is a focused look at the New Testament explanations of what the cross is all about. 
Uh, the third is one I've mentioned to you before. It's John R. W. Stott's book called The Cross of Christ, and one of my favorite books that just explores the meaning of the cross. And I was reading that this week, and there were some things that I thought were worth sharing, and really Stott provides uh, kind of a, a, an outline that I think is useful for us as we walk through this passage in Mark chapter 15 today. But in The Cross of Christ, John Stott says this. He hits on a pivotal biblical claim. Now listen to this. Here's the claim that the Bible makes. The cross of Christ is the only grounds on which God forgives sins. The cross of Christ is the only grounds on which God forgives sins. And he goes on to say, you know, the cross is bewildering to people. They wonder, why would a religion that's trying to draw people in have a death emblem? Why would God not just forgive and forget like we tell our children to do? Why the blood? Why the death? Why all of that? Some argue that the cross of Christ sounds like some kind of primitive, superstitious religion that talks about animal sacrifice and blood, and it's just all a little too much, much religious crazy talk for some modern people. And Stott goes on to argue that we as Christians need to understand the cross. We need to understand it so that we can answer the questions that bewilder people as we're trying to share the gospel of salvation with them. And I think that that is certainly true. So today, we're going to journey with Jesus to a cross, a Roman death implement. And we're going to follow him all the way to his death. And then we're going to ask and try to answer, what does the cross do? What, what does it reveal? What does it show us? What does it teach us? What does it accomplish? So on the back of your bulletin is a little page for notes. Let me go ahead and give you the four-part outline, the things that we're going to look at, give you some headings, going to give you some handles to grab onto. First of all, we're going to consider that the cross reveals the gravity or the seriousness of human sin. The cross reveals human sin. Number two. The cross is a reflection of divine justice and human moral responsibility. The cross is a reflection of divine justice and human moral responsibility or accountability. Number three, the cross displays the righteous wrath of a holy God. And this is one that I think a lot of people miss. They think God is just like us. But God is not just like us. He is righteous. He is holy. And he hates sin. So it displays the righteous wrath of a holy God. Number four, the cross reveals to us the reconciliation between God and man. So that's the outline. Let's begin by reading verses 16 through 20 as we consider the cross as a revelation of the depths of human sin. The soldiers took him, that is Jesus, away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling, and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's stop there and just consider this. But the cross and everything that happens in and around it reveals human sin and sinfulness. And the gravity, the seriousness of it. For it is human sin that has now led Jesus 
to the cross. Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And he argues that basically we've, we've kicked the word sin out of the human vocabulary in our day. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. But we need to. The cross beckons us first and foremost to consider the gravity and seriousness of human sin. Here's what Menninger says about what happened to sin in our world. He says it's dropped off of the radar because, first of all, sin has been uh, recategorized as crime. So some people would say, well, we don't want to talk about sin. Let's talk about crime. Let's talk about breaking human laws. But sin is breaking the law of God. And so we've moved sin from parish to police precinct. We want to talk about crimes. Then he says sin has been renamed sickness. For it's a sick, if it's a sickness, it's almost something that we didn't cause. We don't really have any culpability of it. And I love it, you know, to think about this is if we recategorize sin as sickness, we move from needing a mediator to God, and all we need is medication. So we recategorize sin as sickness. And then he says, some rebrand sin as alternative lifestyle. So it's not really sin. It's just a different way of living that's equally valid. And fourthly, he said, sin masquerades as what he calls collective irresponsibility. And in that, he explains that what happens is we, we start to look for other people to blame and the situations that were foisted upon us. So collective irresponsibility. We're not culpable. We're not responsible because of society and unjust structures and all of those kinds of things. And I could really go off and talk a little bit, but I haven't actually studied that much on it, on all of the new uh, theories of justice and all of the stuff that people are pushing, um, uh, you know, under this category of being woke and all of this stuff. And basically what they're teaching is that man is not culpable because society is unjust. And so collective irresponsibility where we transfer the blame to someone else. And as I read this passage, and we read and see even in the weeks previous to this how Jesus was treated and betrayed by even his own friends, by Judas, how he was maligned by the religious authorities, how he was mishandled and abused by the police, both the temple police and now Roman soldiers in the cohort. We see the very people that should care for people, that should be administering justice, treating Jesus as a political pawn and a punching bag. I want you to think about this. The very people who are supposed to be protecting the innocent, take the only innocent person who has ever lived, and they traded him around for politics and to get their way. And then when they finally decide they're going to crucify him, Instead of pure justice, what do we see? Cruelty. Torture. They take a crown of thorns and they pierce his head with it and they push it down and they punch him. They beat him with a reed. Now folks, it's one thing to punish the guilty. It's another thing unjustly to punish the innocent, and then to torture them as well. You know, in all of this around the cross, we see human cruelty. 
at its worst. Torture, crucifixion. I mean, you think about this, that the Roman Empire from the 6th century B.C. to about the 4th century A.D. for a thousand years chose public execution by hanging criminals on a cross and torturing them to death under the name of justice. Human sinfulness is everywhere we turn in and around the story of the cross. And there is Jesus right in the middle of that, being the butt of it all. You know, friends, it's no different in our time. Humans, every one of us, are sinful. At every turn, we look around and we see the same kind of thing going on today. And we're even a part of it many times, unfortunately. So the cross is a revelation of the reality and the gravity of human sin. And when I say gravity, the seriousness of it, think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, is losing his life and is tortured at the hands of sinful man. So it's serious. We're not playing around here. Sin is not just a little oopsie. It is serious. And the cross begins to reveal that to us. Even though we would like to shield our eyes from it. The cross invites us into the human condition and our sinfulness. The next thing we want to see is how the cross reflects a divine sense of justice and human moral accountability or responsibility. Let's read verses 21 through 28. So we, we've dealt with the fact that sin is real. What else does it say? Beginning in verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Though human justice was actually miscarried and aborted from a human standpoint, in the trial and the execution of Jesus we realize that it still did take place in the context of a Roman judicial system. His pretrial before the Jews still took place in a court where they're trying to get at justice. While there are no perfect systems, I'll tell you this, we humans bear the mark of the image of God in that we want justice, though we seek it imperfectly. We know that those who do wrong should be dealt with, should be punished. We know that. It is ingrained all over our hearts and all over our societies. And here is Jesus who did no wrong. And the Gospels make very plain that Jesus was completely innocent. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God. And here he is crucified between two criminals, Two who had transgressed the laws. It calls them transgressors. Those who willfully went beyond what the law allows. And now they are being required 
to come under justice. You know, justice is within us. The idea that people have to take responsibility for what they do. We know that. But I wonder if we know it about ourselves. I wonder if we're willing to apply that and allow God to apply that to us when we realize our own sinfulness. I think that our modern society is somewhat losing its grip on this idea of personal, moral responsibility and accountability. I think we're losing it. I, I, I've, I've worked with uh, kids and with people in, in public settings for over two decades. And I can tell you, I mean, there's, there's just a shift. Things are changing. We are losing sight of some important realities. And I think the cross brings us back to them. And that is the idea of moral responsibility. Let me just go on a little side note and say, parents, teachers, Adults who oversee children and deal with other people under your authority, whether that's workers or whatever. Stop doing everything for other people. Require people to take responsibility for their work, for their actions. I tell you, I mean, and I don't know, you know, I'm a perfect child. I was raised perfectly and all that. You know, of course, of course. You know, we always compare others to ourselves. I'm sure, you know, I was raised with a lot of flaws and inherently have a bunch of them. But one thing I was taught was responsibility. I was given chores to do. I was given allowance to do those chores. It wasn't very much, wasn't near enough, right? And there were penalties for not doing the chores. My dad had thick leather belts that were enforcers of the law. They scared us to death and let us know that we would be held accountable and responsible for the actions that we did when we transgressed his rules or God's rules. I remember stealing a three-cent piece of gum after church, of all things. I must not have listened to the sermon I went to the little 7-Eleven after church, and Mom was buying us all. And she was buying us gum. But I'm a cereal gum chewer, man. I was like, that five pieces is not going to last any time. Let me just go ahead and get one more. So I stuck it in my pocket. And so I, I popped that in my mouth on the way home. And I got home, and uh, Mom says, hey, where'd you get that gum? You bought me gum. Your package isn't opened. Uh-oh. And I'm going to tell you, I took some lashes over that deal. And uh, I was like, it's three cents? Come on. And then I got to go back to the 7-Eleven and pay and give restitution and apologize for my actions before evening church. Responsibility. Stop giving everything to everyone. Make them work for it. Make your kids work. Now you kids are like, dude, move on to point three, right? Make them work. Hold them accountable. God will hold us accountable. He does hold us accountable. We have human moral responsibility for our actions. And woe to us when we don't teach that. Because that's what's coming before God. So, here's the cross of Jesus. And there's these crucified thieves on either side of, of him showing us the sense of divine justice that we have. It's embedded in our society, but also 
showing us something about God, that he is going to hold us accountable for the things that we do. The cross shows us that. God cannot, a righteous and holy and good and just God cannot just look the other way when there is sin and evil abounding in the world. He has to do something about it or he's not good. If God does not deal with evil which hurts and destroys his creation, he is not a good God. He's unjust. And so the cross shows us that God is serious about sin and he is dealing with it. He has and he will continue to deal with it. The cross shows us that. Human responsibility, culpability, which leads us to the next thing that the cross accomplishes. Number three, the cross reveals, it accomplishes this, it shows us or reveals God's holy wrath against sin. Verses 29 through 37. We've really been just kind of looking at things on the human plane, though there are some heavenly things happening. But verses 29 through 37 begin to make clear that God is involved in what's going on. He is reacting. He is doing something here at the crucifixion. Verses 29 through 37. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, that's Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. But when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In the middle of the day, a darkness pervades and comes over the land. God is doing something. Something is happening. And that darkness is a sign that something is happening in the heavens and on earth. And Jesus' cry of dereliction, his cry that comes from Psalm 22, 1, of being God forsaken. Jesus knows. He feels now something has broken for a moment between him and the Father. The Father has turned away. He is pouring out his holy wrath against mankind's sin upon Jesus on that cross. You know, the Bible said, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is being hanged or crucified on a, on a tree, on a crucifix of wood, a, crucif uh, a cross of wood signaling God's curse being poured out on sin. Do you know what the word curse means? It doesn't mean to say a bad word. It's not a set of words you do not say. A curse is a divine judgment. It is being abandoned from the blessing and the peace and the goodness of God over 
to what sinfulness deserves. It's divine judgment. That's what it is. And Jesus is now is feeling the curse of God against mankind's sin. Now listen, we've said that the cross reveals to us the seriousness of sin. The cross says to us that we are responsible. God will take action and hold humanity accountable for the wickedness done. But the cross reveals that God pours out his wrath upon Jesus. Which seems a little bit strange. It seems a little bit strange, but follow with me and we'll look at this in the last point. But what I want you to see is that the curse of God, the divine judgment of God against mankind's sin, we read it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that in the day that you sin, you shall surely perish. Death will be your end. That is the final step of feeling the curse and experiencing the curse, the divine judgment of God because of sin. And what I want you to see is that Jesus went all the way to death. He drank the bitter cup fully unto death. That says Jesus died on the cross. A slow, grueling, torturous, in some ways unjust death. And yet from heaven's standpoint, perfect justice for what mankind's sin deserved. The holy wrath of God poured out. He tasted death. You know, death is serious. Death is something that every one of us will face. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Better to go into a house of mourning than a house of feasting because death is the end of every man. Now, we don't often think it's better to go to a funeral than a festival, do we? But listen, folks, hang with me for just a minute. It's good that we see this. Because death is the final and ultimate curse on sin. And Jesus went all the way there for us. That leads us to the last thing. That the cross, what does it accomplish? It provides a way of reconciliation so that guilty sinners can be made right with God. The cross accomplishes this. It provides a way of reconciliation so that guilty sinners can now come before God. Verses 38 and 9. Just after Jesus utters that loud cry and he breathed his last breath, what happens? It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Something happens when Jesus dies. A way of reconciliation. How does reconciliation between two people who have a fractured relationship, how does it occur? Have you ever thought about that? What does the path of reconciliation look like? Now, it's not always exactly the same, but I think there's some principles Here's principle number one in reconciliation where there's a broken relationship that one of the parties has to instigate reconciliation. Someone has to say, man, this is messed up. Our relationship is not good that it's broken. And someone's got to have the courage to go and instigate the path of reconciliation. The Bible says this. 
Here is how we know love. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know who instigated the reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God? God did. He sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. And he walked with courage straight up to humanity at the cross and says, I want to make this right. I want us to have a relationship. So he instigated reconciliation out of love. Then the next step of reconciliation is there has to be an honest reckoning of the offense or the offenses. We can't just come up and say, well, let's kiss and make up. I know things aren't good. Let's just kiss and make up and not talk about what happened. Honestly, if rec true reconciliation is to occur, we're, really we need to deal with what happened. And the cross is an honest reckoning of man's sin. It's God saying, you know, I'm not just sweeping it under the rug. Let's get it out in the open because this stuff is deadly. It's poison. It's heinous. It's horrible. And so there is this honest reckoning of our sin and our offenses against God and what they deserve. And then next, once we've done that, as we're trying to reconcile with others, there have to be terms of settlement. Okay, so we've, we've exposed the, the sin or the offense. We've said we want to reconcile. What are the terms on which now this relationship can be made right? It can't go back to the same thing again because it will just break again. So there are terms of settlement. And usually that includes, here's you a, a good word, restitution. Restitution. Some things have got to be made right. Listen, anytime there is sin or offense, or broken relationships, there has been a cost. There has been a debt accrued. And it's the same with our sins before God. Some things have been broken and messed up. There has been a cost, maybe to many people. There has to be restitution. In other words, we can't just zero the books out. We have to say, who's going to pay for what has happened? Now listen, this is important. This is the theology of the cross and our reconciliation. We can't just pretend. You know, if you, if you came and took a baseball bat and beat up my truck and broke out all the windows, and you say, you know, I didn't really like your sermon. That's what that was about. But I do want to reconcile. I'm going to go, okay. Well, maybe let's reconcile. You go to another church, right? Let's, let's, we're going to have some terms here. But the question becomes, who's going to pay for the truck? Somebody's going to pay. There's been a loss of value. There's been a damaging and a defacing of the property. Now, strict justice and justice only is you pay for the truck. Better yet, let's let the insurance guy pay for it, right? God's way, you recognize your offense. I want this to be made right. You actually don't have enough money to pay for what you've done. There's no way in your life you could ever pay for what you've done. I will absorb the cost. I will pay the cost. The cross, listen to me, the cross is God in and of himself making restitution for the payment of the debt that our sin has made. Now, some people say, well, God, God is a divine child abuser, right? He sends his son, Jesus, to the cross to pay. In our little example, that'd be like me saying, you know what, I don't want you to have to pay. I don't want to pay, let's make my son Isaac pay. And he's like, what? You see, Jesus is God. He willingly came. 
Yes, we know him as the son of God, that's proper to say. But it would be a mistake to say that God somehow sent a third party over here to pay. No, God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to pay and offer restitution for sin's debts. That's what the cross does. Now listen, it's not over. We're not yet reconciled. I've approached you. We've recognized the offense. I've offered to absorb the cost and not call the police on you. That's the terms of settlement. Do you agree? There has to be an agreement on both parts for reconciliation to occur. You know, as sad as it is when our relationships in the human realm are broken, we realize that many times we long to be reconciled with somebody, but they will not. Now, you can say, I forgive. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to curse them. I'm not going to be mean to them. You can say that. But unless both parties agree to the arrangement, there is not true relational reconciliation. Is that right? Y'all with me? True story? You know it's true. And the same is true in the cross. When Jesus breathes his last, it says the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is highly symbolic. It, it signifies that something has happened. And we need to think about that for just a minute. The temple veil was that which separated the sinner who wanted to approach God as a worshiper. The veil separated the worshiper. We could not come before God. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, there we couldn't come into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. That veil separated us because we're unclean. We can't come before God unclean. And so there would be a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And that sacrifice was to say, look, sin is serious. And it costs a life. It ruins lives. And so they would kill an animal. But that blood of a lamb or a goat was just a temporary. It's like making bail for a while before the final judgment. It was never meant to, and it could not, the blood of a lamb could not pay for our sins. But it was a temporary bail before the judgment would come, before Jesus would come. And the temple veil being rent or torn in two there in the temple from top to bottom signified that God did it. The priest didn't go in there and rip it. God did it. And he opens wide now all of a sudden. Now this is, if you're an Old Testament Jew, you're going, what? You're now invited to come in as righteous and holy, made right before God because of what Jesus did. Jesus himself opens a new way to the presence of God and we can be made right by Jesus. A new and living way. It's not the Old Testament sacrificial system. The once and for all Lamb of God has come and he's torn that veil. And he's charging the way right into God. He says, come with me. I want to bring you into the family. I want to reconcile you with God. Romans 3.25 says that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness for sins previously committed and passed over. So at the cross, God makes very clear he's serious about sin and he's making the restitution for your sin and for mine so that we could be made reconciled, made right, not temporarily, but forever. Now listen, all this talk about death and the cross and suffering is pretty heavy, isn't it? But it's serious and we need to talk about it. But it would be a mistake to leave here with our heads down saying, woe to us. 
we're doomed. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is we were doomed until Jesus came. And he provides a way for us to be made perfectly right, righteous, justice, clean, new, reconciled, friend of God, family of God. That's the gospel. Man, it is good news. But it's not automatically applied to everyone. It's not automatically applied to your account. You have to come. The book of Romans says that as well. Oh, sure, God provided Jesus as an atoning sacrifice by his blood, in his blood, so that we could be made right with God, for, but it's for those who believe. It's those who agree to the settlement terms. There's only one grounds on which a sinner can be forgiven before God, and it's at the ground of the cross. And the cross says so many things, and it is so deep and so beautiful if we would understand it. And yet it is so simple that a child can understand it. It's the graciousness of God. That's what's at the cross. We've got to get serious. Every one of us is accountable before God for our lives. The sin that we have done, God has a book. But he's not just perfectly just. He is perfectly gracious and merciful. And he sent Jesus to save us. Come to me, all you who are weary, weighted down by your sins and imperfections, shortcomings of the past, shortcomings of today, the wickedness that's in our heart, the things that have happened. That entire debt and slate can be wiped away. Not swept under the rug, but paid by Jesus at the cross. Do you understand that? That's for you. That's for me. Would you bow with me today? I want to invite you into this story, into this reality. This is the climactic story of all of history. This is the lens by which if we would see rightly ourselves, God, and the world, this is the lens by which we'll see him. This is the only way that we'll be saved. We acknowledge our sin before God, before God, and that it has created a terrible debt. It has hurt and harmed and damaged his creation, other people. We have offended God. We have transgressed his laws. We acknowledge our sin and we accept that. That we're responsible. The devil didn't make us do it. Oh sure, there's a devil who tempts us. Our genetics are not responsible for everything in our lives. We're responsible for our choices that we make and the situations that we face. So we acknowledge our sin. We accept our responsibility. Number three, we recognize that we can never pay the debt caused by our sins. We can never repay that and we throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord who says I, I came for you I came to reconcile you to bring you into the family I sent Jesus to pay for your sins 
Would you accept those terms? Would you come just honestly before the cross, before a crucified Savior? See that as you being culpable, the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus was on the cross. I'm one of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross. And plead to him, nothing have I to bring to save myself. I throw myself on the mercy of a kind and gracious court. I plead the blood of Jesus. I trust in Jesus to save me, to forgive me, to make me right. That's what the Bible calls saving faith. Repent of your sins. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. Today, let let me just speak to individual hearts right now. There is no more crucial message that you will ever hear than this. Would you open your heart to God? Open your heart to Jesus Christ. Claim him as your Lord and Savior today. Right where you sit. I'm not going to ask you to come up here. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or do anything like that. This is so serious that right now, I just want you to do business in your heart. If you know you need to be forgiven today, come to the foot of the cross. Die to the old self and the old way. Trust in Christ. Father, today we are thankful that you have sent your son Jesus to be the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice that by his blood he covered and paid for the sins of the world, for the sins of all nations, all peoples who would come and kneel at the foot of the cross. So today we leave this place not with our heads hanging down, but with a sober rejoicing that you have made us new and clean by the blood of Christ. That though we are unworthy, you count us by Jesus as sons and daughters. You invite us to your very throne, to your table, to feast with you forever. Thank you, Lord. We worship you today. We accept what Jesus has done. We open our hearts and our lives to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.